Welcome to the Trinity's Podcast, where we explore theories about the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Do you love God enough to think about Him? Episode 301, Dr. Daniel Boyarin on John 1. Dr. Daniel Boyarin is the Hermann P. and Sophia Taubman Professor of Talmudic Culture in the Departments of Near Eastern Studies and Rhetoric at the University of California at Berkeley. He's the author of more than a dozen scholarly books and more than 150 scholarly articles in English and in Hebrew. He's been called one of the leading, possibly the leading, Talmudic scholar in the world today. Dr. Boyarin is an Orthodox Jew, although he's notoriously an independent thinker on many topics. Many Christians interested in historical theology and in apologetics have read his work on ancient Jewish and Christian theologies. I did try to get an interview with Dr. Boyarin for this episode. If he hears this, I would consider it an honor to interview him about this and some closely related topics. But for this episode, I'm going to try to explain to you some of his thoughts about ancient Jewish and Christian theologies as expressed in his very interesting book called Borderlines, The Partition of Judeo-Christianity. It'll also take you through most of his appendix to the Jewish Annotated New Testament entitled Logos, a Jewish Word, John's Prologue as Midrash. And by the way, if you want to know more about this very interesting edition of the New Testament, you can check out my interview with one of the co-editors, Dr. Amy Jill Levine, on my Thinking About Religion podcast. I'll put a link for that in the blog post for this episode. Dr. Boyarin is a historian, but he's also a scholar of literature, and he's very interested in how literature can be used to unite or divide people. The way he looks at it In the first and second centuries, common era or AD, what we now call Judaism and Christianity were neither sociologically nor theologically distinct enough to be considered two religions. In fact, he argues that all of the earliest Christians were really within the orbit of a very diverse Second Temple Judaism. Dr. Boyarin is well aware that in the view of many, what's distinctive of Judaism is belief in a unipersonal God, a God which in a sense is simple and doesn't have any distinctions within him. Whereas on the Christian view, quote the Christian view, God is multipersonal. There are distinctions within God. What he's interested to do in his book Borderlines is to explore how this came to be, because it wasn't that way in the beginning. To give you his view in a nutshell, he thinks that in Second Temple Judaism, quite a lot of Jews, possibly even the majority, bought into the idea that there had to be some kind of mediator by which God deals with the world. Now, whether this mediator is a second God, a being numerically distinct from the one true God, or whether this mediator is just a power of God, kind of an aspect of God or an action of God or something like that. Those are pretty big questions. Dr. Boyarin is not terribly concerned with the difference between those two. He emphasizes that there was a widespread buy-in to this idea that there had to be a mediator between the cosmos and the God who created the cosmos. He'll talk about Jews in this period as either being binatarians or ditheists, 
without, you know, concerning himself too much with what the difference between those two is. The reason that Dr. Boyarin's work is so beloved by contemporary apologists, and honestly, they just take bits and pieces of it, they tend not to understand his whole vision, his whole concerns, is that they want to say, hey, look, the Jews already, when Jesus came on the scene, they already believed in multiple persons in God. And so it was not that surprising that people like Paul and John came to see Jesus as being one of the persons within God. Because look, Jews have long believed there were multiple persons in God, right? There's the Lord and there's the angel of the Lord. Now, the angel of the Lord, those are some difficult questions for the interpretation of the Hebrew Bible, but I'm going to set those aside because I want to get to John 1. But before I get that far, I need to explain some things about ancient Judaism that I think most Christians don't understand, and these are facts that Dr. Boyar spends a lot of time on. So, a mistake in my view that a lot of Christians make when thinking about Judaism and also just thinking about ancient Judaism, like Judaism in the first century, is that they think that Judaism is what they read about in what Christians call the Old Testament. But in fact, Judaism underwent some massive changes in late ancient times. So remember that the Romans destroyed the Second Temple in AD 70, and then in 135, they brutally and finally put down the last Jewish revolt, you know, trying to have their own home country. And so Judaism was forced to not anymore be a temple ritual centered religion. And when things eventually shook out, uh, the dominant force in Judaism were the rabbis. And they presented a very text oriented, a very study oriented uh, version of Jewish faith and practice. But as Dr. Boyarin emphasizes, the rabbis kind of standardized a lot of Jewish thinking about God. And in the 100s and in the 200s and even farther on into history, the rabbis were trying to consolidate things in their own way. And yet at the same time, there survived other kind of streams of Jewish thought and practice. So eventually they came to dominate, but that did not happen right away. And one thing that interests him, and this is especially happening in the 100s and the 200s, is the phenomenon of defining an orthodoxy by means of casting out certain people from within your group as heretics. So the way that, for instance, Catholic apologists will sometimes present heresy in the ancient world you know, the church was just sailing along with its Roman Catholic views, right? Because Peter was the first pope and it was always Trinitarian, etc. And then these bad men like Arius, infected with this pagan philosophy, uh, came in and tried to you know, produce a subordinationist view where the son isn't as divine as the father. And the church stood up and said, no, we're not going to take it. We're not going to stand for that sort of thing. And they maybe clarified what was less clear before. The way that Dr. Boyarin views it, that is all kind of self-serving, propagandistic, uh, and wrong-headed. The way defining orthodoxy actually works is there's a more diverse group kind of traveling together, religiously speaking, nearby one another. And those who have some strong views about what should and shouldn't be allowed will define what later comes to be considered orthodoxy precisely by ejecting these other people. So in Christianity, by the, about by the early to mid-200s, 
If you didn't believe in the pre-existent Logos as a second god, a lot of Catholic thinkers would just say that you're, quote, a Jew. They've just labeled you as an outsider and defined you as being not orthodox. So this would be people like the ancient dynamic monarchians and modalistic monarchians, people who did not agree that the Logos was a second and lesser god in addition to the one true god, which is the Father. And Dr. Boyarin argues at length that you see a parallel process going on at just about the same time in the Jewish realm, whereas before you could be a Jew and speculate freely about there being some second power or some intermediate uh, being or something or other between God and creation. Around this same time, late 100s on through the 200s, the rabbis are declaring that, quote, two powers, belief in two powers in heaven, so that there's God and then there's this intermediary, is heretical. And so, in so doing, they're defining what will eventually be counted as Orthodox Jewish theology. And he says it's almost like a conspiracy. There are these two forces working together. The rabbis saying, hey, if you believe in two powers, you're no Jew, you're a heretic, and probably a Christian. Although, in their polemical sources, they tend not to name the Christians as such. It's an interesting question, why? And on the other side, the proto-Catholics are saying, if you don't believe there's a second divine being who existed before the world and through whom God created the world, you're a Jew. And furthermore, you're a heretic. So theologically, I'm not really sure I understand kind of what Dr. Boyarin's agenda is. I think he believes that this division is rather unfortunate and has led to bad things. And he thinks that Christians and Jews are kind of in the dark, maybe self-deceived about, you know, how their religion's always been distinct from the other. And he says there was a time when Christians were Jews, and conversely, there was a time when many Jews held to speculative points of theology, much like the Christians uh, eventually came up with. So, I suppose that part of his idea is that the groups ought to have a little more sympathy for one another. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Boyarin's own summary of his views on John 1 with my commentary. going to present to you Dr. Boyarin's appendix from the Jewish Annotated New Testament. It's called Logos, a Jewish Word, John's Prologue as Midrash, and this will explain a lot of his interpretation of John 1. And I'll also offer some of my own comments and bring in a few points from his much longer treatment in his book called Borderlines. Dr. Boyarin writes, in the first centuries of the Christian era, some Greek philosophical circles regarded the idea of the word, Greek logos, as a link connecting the transcendent slash the divine with humanity slash the terrestrial. 
The idea of this link between heaven and earth, whether called by the Greek logos or Sophia, wisdom, or by the Aramaic memra, word, also came to permeate first and second century Jewish thought. This was facilitated by the Jewish belief in the existence of other supernatural beings who communicated the divine will to humans. Let me pause there. I think this is exactly right. And one thing that he leaves out is that the reason for this widespread felt need for an intermediary was the influence of the famous Greek philosopher Plato, especially in his dialogue called the Timaeus. And if you want to hear my summary of this influence, check out my free article called Metaphysics and Logic of the Trinity, which is available at Oxford Handbooks Online for free. And I'll put a link to that in the blog post for this episode. And one more point, lest you think this was just some little wingnut bunch of Jews who were extremely Hellenized, who were extremely influenced by Greek culture, language, and philosophy, Dr. Boyarin again correctly makes the point that in this period, there really weren't any Jews that weren't somewhat Hellenized, right? Just reflect on the fact that the entire New Testament is written in Greek. So it's really a question of degree of influence. There isn't really any pure Hebraic thought here, which is untouched by Greek influence. Dr. Boyarin continues, The use of the Logos in John's Gospel, in the beginning was the Word, that is Logos, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, John 1.1, is thus thoroughly Jewish. It is even possible that the idea of the Trinity began to develop precisely in pre-Christian Jewish conceptions of the second and visible divine being who played a mediating role between the heavenly and earthly sphere. Side note, I wouldn't go that far. The idea of the Trinity as in a tripersonal God comes in rather late and just isn't in play in the 100s and in the 200s. So now he talks about Philo, the very Hellenized Jewish writer contemporary roughly with Jesus. He writes, Philo, writing in 1st century CE Alexandria for a Jewish audience, presents the idea of the Logos as if it were a commonplace. His writings make apparent that, at least for some pre-Christian Jews, there was nothing strange about a doctrine of a manifestation of God, even as a, quote, second God. The Logos did not conflict with Philo's idea of monotheism. Philo and his Alexandrian Jewish community would have found the idea of the divine word slash Logos, for example, Numbers 11.23, and even the expression, Word of God, Jeremiah 1.2, Logos to Theu, in the Septuagint, right, the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures, where the, quote, word creates, reveals, and redeems. Picking up on this usage, speaking of the revelation at Sinai, where unexpectedly the voice is seen, Philo writes, Whereas the voice of mortals is judged by hearing, the sacred oracles intimate that the words of God, Logoi, the plural, are seen as light is seen, for we are told that all of the people saw the voice, Exodus 20.18, not that they heard it, for what was happening was not an impact of air made by the organs of mouth and tongue, but the radiating of splendor of virtue indistinguishable from a fountain of reason. 
But the voice of God, which is not that of verbs and names, yet seen by the eye of the soul, he, Moses, rightly introduces as visible. And that's from Philo's book called On the Migration of Abraham, 47 and 48. Boyarn continues, This text draws a close connection between the Logos and light, similarly to John 1, 4-5. In him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. Further, for Philo, as for the Gospel of John, the Logos is both a part of God and also a separate being. Philo writes, To his word, Logos, his chief messenger, Archangelos, highest in age and honor, the father, Pater, of all, has given the special prerogative to stand on the border and separate the creature from the creator. This same, i.e. the Logos, both pleads with the immortal as suppliant for afflicted mortality and acts as ambassador of the ruler to the subject. He glories in this prerogative and proudly proclaims, quote, And I stood between the Lord and you, Deuteronomy 5.5, 5, that is, neither uncreated by God, nor created as you, but midway between the two extremes, a surety to both sides. And that was a quote from Philo's book called Who is the Heir of Divine Things, sections 205 to 206. Boyarn writes, Philo oscillates between presenting a separate existence of the Logos and depicting it as totally incorporated within the Godhead. Let me pause there for a second and comment. That last bit is a very gentle way of saying that Philo's thoughts are incoherent on this topic. Like he just doesn't have a single view. He just kind of seems to waver back and forth between two different views. If you're concerned about the truth of the matter, that's an important thing, I think, to pick up on. And it's not a conclusion that you should come to lightly. Philosophers talk about what they call the principle of charity. This is that, insofar as it's possible, you should try to interpret a source as consistent with itself and also consistent with other known facts. Now, charity has its limits. Sometimes you have to just admit that a certain thinker or a certain book just doesn't have its story straight. It's just not self-consistent or it is inconsistent with other obvious facts. But the point of the principle of charity is that that should be a last resort and we should expend some real effort into coming up with a coherent interpretation of the source. Dr. Boyarin, and I think this is correct, concludes that Philo doesn't have a coherent position about this logos of God. And he also just says, yeah, but neither does John, neither does the fourth gospel. That part I disagree with. I don't think we need to read this logos as, quote, both a part of God and also a separate being. And by part of God, I'm not sure he means part. I mean, I think he's using that term very broadly, so, you know, just any property of God could be called a part of God. As I read the fourth gospel, this logos of God is really a divine attribute or an expression of a divine attribute. And so, not exactly a part of God, but also definitely not a separate being from God. 
Back to Dr. Boyarin. Philo's Logos draws upon the figure of wisdom, Greek Sophia, Hebrew Chokma, in the Bible, and upon the Stoic Logos, the active reason pervading and animating the universe, and upon the divine word, Hebrew Devar, but he combines these elements into a new synthesis. Philo develops this novel synthesis, as is his wont, by biblical allegories. And here's a quotation from book two of his book called On Dreams. Philo writes, The divine word, Theos Logos, descends from the fountain of wisdom, Sophia, like a river, to fertilize and water the Olympian and celestial shoots and plants of virtue-loving souls, which are as a garden. And this holy word, Hieros Logos, is separated into four heads, which means that it is split up into the four virtues. It is this word, Logos, which one of Moses' company compared to a river, when he said in the Psalms, The river of God is full of water, Psalm 65.10, where surely it were absurd to use that word literally with references to rivers of the earth. Instead, as it seems, he represents the divine word, Theos Logos, as full of the stream of wisdom, Sophia, with no part empty or devoid of itself, inundated through and through and lifted up on high by the continuity and unbroken sequence from that ever-flowing fountain. Boyarn continues, Other versions of Logos theology, namely notions of the second God as the personified word or wisdom of God, were also present among Aramaic, Hebrew, and Syriac-speaking Jews. Hints of this idea appear in late biblical texts describing wisdom, such as Proverbs 8, 22-31, and Job 28, 12-28. They appear as well in apocryphal-slash-deuterocanonical books, such as Sirach 24, 1-34, Wisdom 722-1021, and Baruch 3, 9-44. Especially common is the Aramaic word memra, word of God, which appears in the Targumim, the early Aramaic translations and paraphrases of the Bible, which are from roughly the 2nd and 3rd centuries common era. In the Targumim, memra is used in contexts that are frequently identical to ones where the Logos has its home among Greek-speaking Jews. Although official rabbinic theology sought to suppress all talk of the memra or Logos, before the rabbis, contemporaneously with them, and even among them, many Jews held a version of monotheism that accommodated this divine figure linking heaven and earth. Whereas Maimonides, 1135-1204, and his followers, a millennium after the flourishing of Memra theology, understood the Memra along with the Shekinah, presence, as a means of avoiding anthropomorphisms in speaking of God, historical investigations suggest that in the first two centuries CE, the Memra was not a mere name, but an actual divine entity functioning as a mediator. And just an aside here, I would add, yes, but don't forget that Philo talks about the Logos, etc. as powers of God, and in some of these sources it's very much ambiguous whether or not these are just literal powers or expressions of God's power, or whether they are actual, real, intermediate beings. But it would seem that the platonic demand for an intermediary would require a third party. So here I'm going to skip a bit of Dr. Boyarin's appendix. He gives examples from several of the Targums, again from around the 
100s and 200s AD, in which the Memra, God's word in Aramaic, he says, performs many, if not all, the functions of the Logos in Christian theology or wisdom in earlier sources. So God's Memra is described as creating, as speaking to humans, as revealing the divine self, as punishing the wicked, as saving, and as redeeming. Another aside here, in the scholarship of the 20th and 21st centuries, a lot of scholars don't think that talk of God's word, Memra, in the Targums is very important for understanding sources like John. For one thing, they are, strictly speaking, later than anything in the New Testament. And so, seeing them as part of the relevant background requires you to make the inference that these ideas go back to before the time of John, the times before the New Testament was written. Maybe that's right, uh, but a lot of commenters have seen this memory business as basically just being a way to talk around saying the divine name. It's just a polite way of not mentioning God himself. But Boyarin's point of view is that, look, if you can recognize that sometimes this Logos is a being in addition to God, then it looks like the same thing could be true of the Memra in some of these texts. So to continue his appendix, he writes, The conclusive evidence for the connection of the Targumic Memra and John's Logos appears in the Palestinian Targum's poetic homily on the Four Nights, probably a liturgical text that delineates four special nights in sacred history. Quote, Four nights are written in the Book of Memories, the first night when the Lord was revealed above the world to create it. The world was unformed and void, and darkness was spread over the surface of the deep, and through his memra there was light and illumination. End quote. This text matches the first verses of John's prologue with its association of Logos, the Word, and Light. The Midrash of the Four Nights culminates in the coming of the Messiah, which draws even closer the connection between the Targum heard in the synagogue and John's Gospel. Moreover, this Midrash is most likely a fragment of Paschal liturgy, so liturgy relating to what's normally called the Passover, suggesting even more palpably its appropriateness for comparison with John's Gospel, where Jesus is compared to the Passover offering. In order to see this connection fully, however, we must pay attention to the formal characteristics of Midrash, a mode of reading scripture. One of the most characteristic forms of Midrash is a homily on a passage from the Torah, the books of Moses, that invokes explicitly or implicitly texts from either the prophets or the writings, you know, basically the books that come after the books of Moses in the Old Testament, very frequently Psalms, Song of Songs, or Wisdom Literature, as the framework for interpreting that initial passage. This interpretive practice is founded on a notion of the oneness of Scripture as a self-interpreting text, and especially that the latter books are a form of interpretation of the Torah. Perceived gaps in the Torah are not filled with philosophical ideas, but with allusions to or citations of other biblical texts from outside the Torah. When the Trinity's podcast returns, Dr. Boyarin on the prologue to John.
The first five verses of John's prologue match this madrishic form nearly perfectly. The verses being preached are the opening words of Genesis, and the extra Torah text serving as the interpretive framework is Proverbs 8.22-31. Because Genesis is interpreted, however, John uses logos and not the term Proverbs uses wisdom slash Sophia. The preacher of the prologue had to speak of Lagos because his homiletical effort is directed at the opening verses of Genesis with their majestic, quote, Then God said, Let there be light, and there was light, end quote. It is God's saying, God's Lagos, that produces the light. And indeed, through this word, everything was made that was made. As Philo and others identified Sophia and the Lagos as a single entity, so the composer of the Johannine Prologue draws from Proverbs the figure, epithets, and qualities of the second God, or second person, the companion of God and agent of God in creation. Just an aside, that's not the view of Proverbs. (laughs) But once you buy into this need for an intermediary, then it's very tempting, yes, to take this wisdom character that way as this needed intermediary that God had to use to create. Back to Dr. Boyarin. For the purposes of interpreting Genesis, however, this preacher focuses on the Logos, which is alone mentioned explicitly in Genesis. He writes, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things came into being through him, and without him not one thing came into being. What has come into being in him was life, and the life was the light of all people. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. The assertion that the word was with God relates to Proverbs 8.30. Quote, Then I, wisdom, was beside him. End quote and even to Wisdom 9.9, quote, with you is wisdom, end quote. As is frequently the case in a rabbinic midrash, the gloss on the verse being interpreted is dependent on a later biblical idea, in this case Proverbs 8, that is alluded to but not explicitly cited. Later Jewish texts show that Proverbs 8 had become commonplace in the Jewish interpretive tradition of Genesis 1. Although John 1, 1-5 is our earliest example of this tradition, this idea is so abundant in late antique Jewish writing that it is best read as the product of a common tradition shared by some Messianic Jews and some non-Messianic Jews. For instance, the Palestinian Targum renders Genesis 1, 1 in the beginning by, quote, with wisdom God created, end quote, clearly also alluding to the Proverbs passage. In light of this evidence, the Fourth Gospel's Logos theology is not a new creation in the history of Judaism. Its innovation is only, if even this, in its incarnational Christology, namely the taking on of flesh by the Logos in verse 14. John 1, 1-5 is not a hymn or a poem, but a midrash, that is, a homily on Genesis 1, 1-5. The very phrase that opens the gospel in the beginning shows that creation is the focus of the text. 
The rest of the prologue applies the Midrash of the Logos to the appearance of Jesus. Only from John 1.14, which announces that the Word became flesh, does the narrative begin to diverge from synagogue teaching. Until verse 14, John's prologue is a piece of perfectly unexceptional Jewish thought that has been seamlessly woven into the Christological narrative of the Gospel. So that's the end of Dr. Boyarin's appendix in the Jewish Annotated New Testament. It's clear to me that he was under severe constraints regarding word count, and so that's why he kind of jumps from discussing John 1, 1 through 5, and then talks about verse 14 and has to stop there. But in his book, Borderlines, he actually does give a reading of the entire passage, and I think it's pretty illuminating. So let me try to summarize some of what he says there. So let me just continue through the prologue in the New Revised Standard Version. Verse 6, There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify to the light, so that all might believe through him. He himself was not the light, but he came to testify to the light. The true light which enlightens everyone was coming into the world. And I take it that the light here, which was said to be in the Logos in verse 4, the term light is being used here to refer to the Logos. So the Logos is God's word, which in pre-New Testament times was equated with God's wisdom. And Dr. Boyarin refers to different uh, ancient Jewish traditions of talking about wisdom, trying to come into the world, trying to get into the world. Uh, Sometimes it takes multiple attempts. Sometimes it ends up coming down to the world in the form of the Torah, the books of Moses. There's other literature in which wisdom, you know, tries to find a way into the world and can't find a place and just decides to go back up to heaven and be with God. And the way he looks at this passage, it's referring to three kind of thrusts of the Logos to get into the world. So the first attempt of the Logos to get into the world is in verse 5, the light shines in the darkness and the darkness does not overcome it or did not comprehend it, some would translate. Just as an aside, I think you can take this sequentially. You can take this to be referring to God's natural revelation or general revelation uh, before he picked out the Jews to be his special people and revealed his word to them. Just before then, God's word doesn't get as far as it needs to get into the human mind. Right, so despite the light shining in the darkness, still God's word is not uh, revealed enough, not known enough in the human realm. He was in the world, and the world came into being through him, yet the world did not know him. So the second attempt to get in is not just through natural or general revelation, but through special revelation to the Jews. And this attempt, you know, worked and didn't work. His own people did not accept him, him being wisdom or God's word. But yeah, some of them did, so the attempt was partially successful. Dr. Boyarin writes, The second attempt of wisdom to enter the world comprised the giving of the Torah to Israel and the failure of that instrument as a means of bringing the Logos into the world because Israel did not understand, as will be recapitulated in verse 17. On this reading, these verses would provide almost a retort to the interpretation of the wisdom myth as found in Ben Sirah 24, whereby wisdom finally finds a home in Israel in the form of the Torah. 
And then he points out that in First Enoch and in Second Esdras, uh, he writes, the unrighteousness of Israel has driven wisdom back to heaven. So in some Jewish writings, they said, hey, the Torah, that is wisdom embooked. That's wisdom on earth, is wisdom fully revealed to humankind. And other Jewish sources said, no, it's not, because this wisdom is still confined. It's not pervading the human realm yet. And so, you know, wisdom got somewhere there, but didn't get all the way. Heck, maybe even wisdom went back up to heaven. So in First Enoch 42, 1 and 2, the author writes, Wisdom could not find a place in which she could dwell, but a place was found for her in the heavens. Then wisdom went out to dwell with the children of the people, but she found no dwelling place. So wisdom returned to her place, and she settled permanently among the angels. Right, so there's an argument going on here in Jewish sources about whether God's eternal wisdom has kind of fully arrived, has been as revealed as it needs to be. And on Dr. Boyarin's reading, John is participating in that. And he takes the moderate view that, yes, wisdom did come here in ancient scriptural revelation, but still it was rejected by its own people. So it made a partial entry, but didn't get all the way in. Guess who's going to bring it all the way in? When the Trinity's podcast returns, doesn't Jesus come into this passage well before verse 14? this talk about believing in his name and becoming the children of God who are born of God, even though that does sound Christian to our ears, Dr. Boyarin points out that there is plenty of precedent for Jewish talk about these things. And so it's very easy to read this as just continuing to talk about the faithful Jews who did receive God's word and did thereby become children of God. So Philo uses language like that, and other Jewish sources of this period do talk like that. Here's a kind of summary of Dr. Boyarin's take on the whole thing. He writes, The three sections of the prologue are thus a general narrative of the activity of the Logos, based on a midrash of Genesis 1, an expansion of that narrative via the myth of wisdom's misfortune in the world, narrating as well the failure of Torah to bring the Logos to the people and then the new denouement to that myth in the incarnation of the Logos as Jesus. The Gospel writer has accomplished two great works through the structure of this prologue and its narrative unfolding. He anchors the story of the incarnation and the life of Christ in the whole cosmology and myth of the coming and rejection of the light, and he moors his own Christological narrative in a traditional Jewish midrash on Genesis 1. And so then he mentions that, look, there is a narrative sense, there is a flow to the whole passage. 
And so we don't need these modern speculations about did John take a pre-existing hymn and adapt it and change it somehow. Whether or not there was a pre-existing hymn, this is his composition and it can be understood in its own terms. So, 14. And when he's talking about incarnation here, he just means, I think, whatever John means by verse 14. He's not really hitching his wagon to, you know, fourth century Chalcedon doctrine of two natures. So, verse 14, and the word became flesh and lived among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of a father's only son, full of grace and truth. John testified to him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks ahead of me because he was before me. See some of the earlier Trinity's podcast episodes on that, by the way. That can be made sense of if you translate carefully. Verse 16, From his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Dr. Boyarin writes, We can now understand verses 16 and 17 from his fullness and the law was given through Moses, etc., in a way that I think has been underplayed if it has been seen at all. The law given through Moses represents the earlier attempt of the Logos to enter the world, as adumbrated in verses 12 and 13. The myth of wisdom elaborated in verses 9 through 13 relates the partial failure of the word in the world. Although the Word is the creator of all, as we have learned in verse 3, all was not capable of receiving him. Indeed, his own people did not receive him when he came in the form of the Torah. In response to this failure, however, this time wisdom did not ascend once more into the heavens and abandon the earth and its people. Instead, God performed the extraordinary act of incarnating the Logos in flesh and blood coming into the world as an avatar and teacher of the word, not the words. Since the goal of the Logos was to make it possible for those who believed in his name to become not flesh and blood, but children of God, he who was properly the only child of God, the monogenitos, became flesh among us. Just an aside, I don't think that's right. I don't think the unique son is supposed to be the Logos. I think the unique son is supposed to be Jesus, who's been introduced three verses earlier. Uh, So I don't see that this reading supports traditional incarnation ideas at all. I think it's compatible with them, but I don't think it requires them. And that, I think, is a great advantage of it. And in particular, notice that nothing about this reading requires that God's Logos is the same person as the man Jesus. For all that's been said, God can just reveal his truth, his word, his message most fully through the man Jesus. That's all that, quote, incarnation here needs to amount to, if this reading is correct. Toward the end of his main chapter on this in his book, Dr. Boyarin writes, Until verse 14, what we have before us is a piece of perfectly unexceptional, non-Christian, Jewish thought that has been seamlessly woven in to the Christological narrative of the Johannine community. A strictly chronological narrative interpretation of the text, rather than a lyrical hymnic one, makes for a better reading. I'm inclined to agree. I've tried to present the basics of Dr. Boyarin's exegesis of this famous text, 
Of course, I didn't come anywhere close to saying everything he says about it, and I strongly recommend uh, his book Borderlines in this regard. I think it includes about everything he says in the appendix to the Jewish Annotated New Testament and more. I would like to see him interact with the old Socinian readings, on which the word throughout this entire passage is just about Jesus. And Jesus doesn't come into it late in verse 14, but he's right there in verse 1. I think he'd have some interesting things to say about it. And I think probably like other scholars like uh, James Dunn, he would probably say, look, an ancient reader, when they see NRK in the very beginning, uh, and then they see creation mentioned after that, they're just going to be thinking, hey, this has got to be the Genesis creation. This can't just be the beginning of Jesus's ministry, the beginning of the gospel era, something like that. In other contexts, yeah, you can talk about the beginning like that. But yeah, when you say in the beginning and then you're talking about God creating and all things that have been created by God's word, yeah, I mean, that's got to just be Genesis creation. And like many Unitarian Christian interpreters, he does see a reference to Proverbs 8 and to other wisdom literature in this talk of God's Logos. So that's it for this week. Let me know what you think by leaving a comment at the blog post for this episode at trinities.org or in the Trinities Podcast Facebook group. This week's thinking music has been the track Desert Castles by Little Glass Men. As always, there's a link in the blog post for this episode at trinities.org where you can listen to or download that entire track. Our next new episode will be released on the first Monday of September. The reason for that is, in an attempt to keep my sanity, I always take August off. So stay safe, stay in touch. God willing, I'll be back with you early in September. listening. We'll see you online at trinities.org. Till next time, don't forget to love God with all your mind.